I want to say thank you to the elders and to the pastoral staff and to Mark. It's an honor to be worshiping with you guys um, this morning. As Jade mentioned, thank you for your support. You, you guys, uh, Lake Norman Baptist, you guys were the very first church, I believe, that came on board to support us. And that means a lot to us. And as you guys know about partnerships uh, in the gospel, when you read through the Bible, how is God advancing the gospel in the world? It's through partnerships. We were never intended to do this alone. Matter of fact, God exists in three persons. God does everything uh, in community. And if you think about a picture of heaven, it's a, it's a picture of all nations, tribes, and tongues. It'll be a picture of all of us together. So I think the theme for this morning is all together, and I think rightly so. We're together. Our little church is, a, is an investment of you guys into the kingdom, and so we just want to say thank you. If you would now, let's, let's stand in reading of God's Word. I'm going to have it behind me, and if you'd like to turn in your Bible, if you have a hard copy, it's going, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 7. And so one of the things that we like to do when we gather as a church family is we like to read the scriptures out loud together. So I'll lead us in reading it together. And then as we read together, we'll read verses 1 through 7. And, and at the very end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And then as a congregation, I'd like for us to say, thanks be to God, just in unison, um, kind, of, kind of all together together saying as one, yes, this is your word, Lord, you have spoken, and then I'll attempt to explain it, all right? So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Luke, the physician, writes, but God, the Holy Spirit, says these words, and read with me. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You may be seated. Last night, my wife and I we gathered a few of our children. I have four children. Some of them were out, but the ones that were at home at the time, we gathered them together and we took a, took a peek at this passage. And after reading it, one of my children said to me, they said, Dad, what are you going to say about this passage? It's just so ordinary. And after pausing for a moment with a smile, I looked at him and I said, Exactly exactly what I think God would have for us this morning. 
As we all know, this is a very, very, very familiar passage. Uh, If you're a preacher, you probably wouldn't want to preach this passage, so I don't have no idea why Mark gave me this passage. Mark. (laughs) Actually, I chose it. Um, It's probably the the most well-known passage in all of the Bible because it chronicles the birth of Christ, which really entails the essence of Christmas. Um, I I heard one uh, famous preacher, John MacArthur, say it probably is the most famous passage in all the Bible. So it's well known. And make no mistake about it that, that the focal point of this passage is the birth of Jesus. That's what the writer Luke is wanting to highlight, to kind of shine the spotlight on, is on the birth of Jesus. Now you guys know that Luke, he was a second generation believer, and he was the companion of the Apostle Paul, and he's ultimately writing to do one thing. He's writing to this gentleman by the name of Theophilus, who was some official, some prominent person, but he was ultimately writing so that his readers and so that Theophilus would have a certainty of what they had been taught about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He was wanting to chronicle for them who Jesus is, what he's done, so that there would not be any doubt about who Jesus is. So this is narrative. This is historical narrative. This is not some made-up stuff. You know, in our culture... They want us to believe that the Bible's a bunch of made-up stories that people made up. It's not. Luke was an eye... Well, he wasn't an eyewitness, but he knew Paul who was an eyewitness. And he had heard the stories and he had traveled. And so he wanted to chronicle. So it's very important for us to see this. So contextually, Luke was writing so that we would be sure. And if you're in here and maybe you have a doubt of Christianity, guess what? It's verifiable. There are historic accounts. When you look at this document, this letter written by by the physician Luke, you have chronicled account. How else would you know about who Jesus was and what he's done? We have evidence. This is the, the beauty of what we have as Christians. The scriptures. And so the backdrop of our passage for the Jewish people, they were living in the, in the land that God had promised them. But at this point in history, they were living under an oppressive ruler, and that ruler was Rome. And to make matters worse, the Roman uh, Senate, they appointed a godless local king by the name of Herod, who for 40 years he exploited the Jewish people And he really did things to advance his own kingdom. You know, just like the temple that was built, he really wanted, he wasn't really interested in in what the the people's worship, he was really interested in his reputation. And so, not only were the Jewish people under the tyranny of Rome, but they had this godless local, local king by the name of Herod who treated his family terrible, treated the people terrible. And to make matters even worse, At the religious level, there was this Sanhedrin who were a group of 70 to 72 men who had a high priest as a leader that many of these men were godless. Many of these men were the people that Jesus had encounters with that he ended up rebuking. So long lay 
the world in sin and error pining. Long lay God's people. That's the context. They were suffering. And they were waiting a Jewish Savior to come. They were waiting a Messiah, one who would come and rescue them from the oppression and the injustice and the godliness. One who, as later in chapter 2, the prophetess Anna alluded to, who who would redeem Israel. They were waiting a Redeemer. And so you fast forward now 2,000, let's say 27 years later. In many ways, it's no different. It's no different for us. But instead of being under the oppressive rule of Rome, guess what? We find ourselves under other oppressors. All of us face the oppressors of what? The world. This world system that is anti-God. We face the oppressor of the flesh. You and I are in a war against our old man that constantly wants for us to live in a way that that Jesus would not have. So we fight the world, we fight the flesh, and we fight this enemy known as the devil, Satan. But maybe more so we face an oppressor, and that oppressor is sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so everywhere we look, I hate to break this to you. No matter which way you wrap it, you know, we, it's, it's, I, just, I just kind of envision in my mind a dead carcass, right? Could you imagine a dead carcass being placed in a beautiful wrapped package with a beautiful bow and unbelievable wrapping colors and the paper's beautiful, but it's a dead carcass in the middle of it. Everywhere we look, no matter how much we fancy things, we still see the markings of death. We still smell death. And this is by virtue of our first parents, Adam and Eve. So there's death, not just in everything, but I think of maybe most prominently there's death when it comes to mankind's relationship with God. There was death. The wages of sin is death. What, what cost man was a spiritual death between him and his creator. If you're in here, maybe you're a guest. Maybe you just came here. You're here for the holidays visiting family. I, I, I want, you may never see me again so I can say some things that maybe I wouldn't say if you were a, we were a home crowd. Listen. God loves you. God created you. But you were born a sinner by virtue of Adam and Eve. And there was death in your relationship with God. And you'll live your life. But at the very end of your life, you will face a judgment according to the Bible. And that judgment is whether or not you trusted in Jesus Christ to live the life that you could not live, to die a death in your place and for your sins, and to be raised for your justification. See, the story of the world is the story of God, and God has created the world to to display him in his character. But we rebelled against God. And so God today wants to invite you into a relationship with him. And so will you, will you respond to God? Will you respond to God? So there was estrangement. There was death. There's death now. One of the things that I always, I've been a pastor for, by God's grace, close to 20 years. 
Uh, I, I always tremble at the holidays because I've done most of my funerals and during the holidays. Uh, funerals often come during the holidays. The holidays are the hardest. And if you're in here, maybe you've lost a loved one. I just want to say to you that God is with you. You may, you, you may be a widow in here. And maybe your spouse came, to, came with you to this wonderful church building Sunday after Sunday. God's with you. So the holidays, they remind me of, of the beauty of Jesus and the incarnation, but the reality is there's still a stench, and that stench is death. And you know what? If you just pause for a moment, and, and most of us, probably all of us, and I'm, just, I'm assuming that all of us are believers in here. Maybe I shouldn't assume that. But just as a Christian, when you just think about what's going on right now and you look at the world around you, right? So let's just contextually, we are in December. It's 2021. It's the holiday season. If you just look around you and you just go, okay, it's, it's, it's the holiday season. It's really about, or it's supposed to be about Christmas right? Especially for the church. How did we get from maybe Luke chapter 2 that we just read to now self-indulgence and materialism on steroids? How, how did we get there? I'll tell you how. We live in a fallen world where there's a fallen man and there's an enemy and 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 there's sin. And so, when you read a passage like, in, like that's in front of us today, whether you know it or not, and I, it's one of the reasons why I picked this ordinary passage, this passage demands something of me and you. So if you're sitting in here alive, breathing, Got air in your lungs. This passage today, it demands something of you. And I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to lay that on us. It demands something of me. It demands something of you. It, it pins us in the corner. And it says to us, how will you respond to what has just been read? So when my, one, of my child, one of my children say, Dad, what are you going to do with that? I go, ho, 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 ho. Wait up a second. God has something to say here. God has something to say. And what does God have to say? I think, I think here's what God has to say. And, and I think it presses itself upon us in the sense that how should we respond to the greatest birth of all time, which is what we've read about. How? Should you and I respond to the greatest birth of all time? And I'll give you my one-word answer, and it's, it's the main point. It's really the only point of my sermon. But our answer, the answer, is worship. We should worship. How should we respond to the birth of Jesus when we've heard it a thousand times? We're to worship. If our hearts are cold, we're to confess and repent that to the, of, of, to the Lord. But we are to worship. We are to ascribe worth to the one who is do it. We're to ascribe worth to the one 
who has come to save us from ourselves and from the tyranny of sin and Satan and death. And so my one point this morning from our passage is how should we respond to the greatest birth of all time? We should worship. We should worship. Well, in explaining this passage on the surface, so let's get into 1 through 7 now. On the surface, it was a quiet and ordinary event, right? According to human standards, there was definitely, uh, it was definitely not the surroundings of a, of, a, of a birth of a royal. You know, Jesus was king. Jesus is king. Jesus was royalty. But when you read it, it this, that's not what the surroundings showed, at least from the world's point of view. We saw in our, our reading of verses 1 through 7, there was an edict sent out by Caesar Augustus, which caused a young man and a young woman betrothed to be married to travel 70 miles while she was in her third trimester. Many women who have had children would say, oh my. You know, it wasn't like just, this was just some great idea. See, what, what was going on was there was this ruler, there was this tyrant who was all about control, and he just says one day, a census is to be made. And so it affects everybody. Next thing you know, here's this lady in her third trimester, 70 miles, probably on a donkey, right? She has to travel. So they both travel to his hometown, Bethlehem, to pay taxes. And upon arrival, it was time for the baby. And when the baby was coming, there was no room in the local inn and no fitted place to have the baby. So I'm sure her ankles were swollen. And then to make matters worse, you show up in Bethlehem and it's like, I'm Joseph, I'm getting ready to have the baby. Joseph, I'm getting ready to have the baby. And I'm sure he's, you know, young dads, you know what it's like when, when your wife goes, it's time, my water broke. You know, you just start scrambling. Well, he's doing the best he can. And I believe the parents, they, they made the best arrangements that they could. What did they do? They found a cave. Uh, perhaps a stable behind where the animals were kept in the local inn. And there in that cave, as mentioned in the text, the greatest miracle in the history of the world took place. There in that cave or in that stable, the greatest of kings, the greatest of prophets, the greatest of priests, the greatest of humans, their God, very God, was born into the world he created. And so this passage, and frankly the whole Bible, is about God. Although it seems normal, trust me, it's about God. And when you gaze at this passage, and when you begin to look at it, what we see is we see the beauty and the majesty of God. Because when you look really, really, really close at it, here's what you see. You see that this passage reveals, reveals the nature of God. And when I say nature of God, what I mean is it reveals what God is like. It's like looking at a diamond that has been cut perfectly or it has perfect symmetrical facets. And, and those cuts are, are precise. And so when that diamond is exposed to light, it just radiates. It sparkles. And that's what this passage does. When you, when you look at it real carefully, it sparkles with the nature of God. And so the remaining of my time, 
I want to highlight this. What do we see from this passage about the nature of God? Well, the first thing we see is humility. We see humility. Tucker alluded to it. I guess one of the Sunday school classes talked about it this morning. There's no doubt about it that God the Holy Spirit, who's the author of Scripture, what he's doing here, the reason why you're reading it's like so ordinary and yet it doesn't match up. You know, Jesus is supposed to be king, but he's not born in like kingly circumstances. When you look at this, what God the Holy Spirit is doing is he's painting a paradox. He's painting a paradox. And that paradox is evident in what God values versus what we value. So if you, if you get anything this morning, hear this. The story is intentionally meant to cause you to scratch your head and go, what? And then as you look closely, you see, oh, this is what God values. And then you begin to ask yourself, do I value what God values? Do I live in the light of how God would have me? So on the surface, you see in verse 1, this powerful ruler named Octavian. His name was, was Octavian. Um, it was changed to Caesar Augustus. Basically, that means sacred or majestic, uh, venerable, lofty. He was the, uh, the nephew of Julius Caesar, and he was considered, hands down, Rome's first and greatest emperor. He reigned for about 40 years. And, and, and Caesar Augustus, Octavian, he was responsible for Rome's transformation from a republic into an empire. And what he did was he combined military might, institution building that laid the foundation of 200 years of peace or Pax Romana for the Romans. And it was during this 40-year reign that he doubled the size of the empire, stretching it from Europe and into Asia Minor. So Caesar Augustus, when you look at this story, is great. Caesar is God to the Roman world. Everywhere you went in the empire, you saw busts or statues of Caesar Augustus. And so you have this paradox. What's the paradox? You see Caesar the Great. You see Octavian, and then you see this little, lowly, humble child born in his backyard. And so you have the contrast, the paradox of a great ruler and a lowly baby. And little did Caesar know, right? Little did he know that this baby was to his own undoing. Then you have this paradox between the majestic splendor of Rome that's in the background of this passage versus Bethlehem. Rome was the supreme city. It was the eternal city. It was the city where Augustus ruled from. It was the city built to please the people and it was built off the taxation of Rome's enemies. It was the eternal city, as I said. But then you have small little Bethlehem in this passage, a small rural town on the hillside of a mountain that was very country and podunk, very unimpressive. 
The only thing that made the town reputable was that it was affiliated, and you saw this twice in the passage, with David. Nothing impressive about Bethlehem. So you see the paradox. You, you, see, you see Caesar and a baby. You see Rome. You see Bethlehem. And then you see this kind of royal palace. You, you, can, you can hear it in the background. You got a royal palace where there's royal babies. And that's where royal babies are born, right? With the best treatment, the best medical advancement, the nurses and the physicians. And what's the contrast? What's the paradox? You have a cave and a stable. You have this nasty, slobbery feeding trough. In those days, often many of them were in the ground. They were dug from the ground. So the contrast, uh, a, perhaps a gold bassinet, gold-lined bassinet versus a feeding trough that was nasty. And when you look at the story and you double-click on it, I mean, we just have to say God, God has a sense of humor because as those of you who have had children know that, that having a child is pretty messy. You know, when, you, when, you, when I saw my first, well, I didn't get to see my first one because there was a situation that happened, but when I saw my other ones, it was like, whoa. So can you imagine the, the earthliness, the messiness? Jesus was born into this world of just nasty. It wasn't sanitary. There wasn't a hand sanitizer to go around. And so the paradox of an emperor and a baby of Rome and Bethlehem of a palace and a manger, I believe it points to an attribute of God that shines in this story, but probably despised by the world and maybe even by the church nowadays. You know, in the church, we, we, we kind of really, it seems like we've become a lot like the world. We, you know, this story really highlights humility. And in the church, we just really magnify pomp we want the best we want the brightest right but here in the story we see humility and when you think about the bible three different times in the bible i think of psalm 138 james 4 first peter 5 it says that god opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble jesus said in matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and humble in heart god the nature of God is humble. He doesn't need what the world has to offer. He actually goes, I'm going to show you that I'm God by not even kind of stepping in that direction. And so what do we see first? We see humility. The second thing we see, we see sovereignty. Verse 6 says, and while they were there, and this is interesting, it says, the time came for her to give birth. What's, what's, what's God the Holy Spirit doing? He's showing everybody that, yes, there was a man who's called Caesar, who was the, the greatest emperor in Rome, the most powerful man in all the planet. Yes, he gave this edict, but no, God was in control. God was in control. 
He was in control then, just like he's in control now. And on the surface, it looks like the decree was determining where Jesus was born. But it was God through the prophet Micah that said that the child would be born in Bethlehem. So you see God's sovereignty on display using humanity's brokenness. This tyrant ruler wanting, calling for a census so he could tax the people. But God using it to fulfill his purposes in the world. And so when you look at this, you have to go, okay, what's going on here? God, what are you like? And I think that the passage is very, very clear. God is humble and God is sovereign and in control. And then the last thing we see in this passage is we see that God is God. That God is deity. You see the incarnation. God, very God, took on human flesh and is born you think about it, the fact that God would humble himself and become like one of his own creation really is mind-boggling. Theologians have stated that for him to be born at all was a humiliation for him. And the circumstances that we read about only confirm this. The second person of the Trinity, God, very God, Jesus Christ, had always existed. And so it was a step down to be born. But that's the way God would have it. That's the way God does things. It's mind-boggling. It's been said that somehow this baby that we see in this story, he contained 23 chromosomes from Mary and 23 chromosomes from God. And he was born fully God, yet fully man. Mind-boggling. And so back to my question that I proposed at the beginning of this sermon. How should we respond to the greatest birth of all time? And how should we respond, church? We should worship. And if we don't, it's because we're not seeing what's there. And isn't that the story of our lives as Christians, right? It's a fight to see what God sees and to value what God values. I mean, think about the gospel in and of itself. It's foolishness to the Greeks who valued, uh, they, they, they valued knowledge. But this gospel, the good news that there is this God who would become man and die. Foolish. But why did he die? He died for us. So, so in looking at the story, how should we respond? How should, should our churches respond this Christmas season? I think we should respond with worship. We worship and we ascribe Jesus the worth that he's due because he's humble, he's sovereign, and he's God. So in closing, I want to do something a little different. In principle, I want to share uh, one point in application as it pertains to how should we carry ourselves as Christians this Christmas season. And then I just want to give us a moment to, to just pause and reflect and stop. You know, I don't know about you, but uh, it's real easy for me to show up on a Sunday morning, go through the motions, and then be out. 
But church, I want us to hear something. That, that every time the church gathers, and every time you kneel and pray, God is inviting you into something. And what that primarily is, it's he's inviting you to be with him. To be in his presence and to pause. You know, Paul used the language in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, though outwardly uh, uh, we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. When we come to God, we make space for him to renew us. And when you look, in, when you look at the verbiage in that, when you break that down, it's, it's really God's the one doing the renewing. And so we're here this morning. Maybe some of us are thinking about food, rightly so. Some of us are probably thinking about the Panther game. Their record's terrible. They're probably not going to beat the Falcons today. That's unfortunate. And I'm just kidding. Uh, But God is inviting us right now to be with him. And so listen to this one point of application. We like to be exalted, not humiliated. Can I get an amen? Amen. But hear me, church. There is an element of divinity in humility. A major element. Matter of fact, Jesus said, I'm humble in heart. The same Jesus who humbled himself for our salvation also wants us to humble ourselves for the sake of others. And hear me. This is, this is going to step on all of our toes. And if it doesn't, we just keep going at it again, all right? He calls us to be like him in putting others first, and hear this, and taking the lowest place for ourselves. He calls us to put others first and to take the lowest place for yourself. What does that look like in your life? What does that look like in our churches? Is is our Christianity about us or is it about others? And the longer I live in this Christian life, you know, just when you, you know, it's so great to get married. For those of you who are, maybe if there's anybody engaged in here, congratulations. Um, But I was totally blindsided when I got married. Because I really was, I didn't realize how much of a rotten, selfish sinner I was. And God was just graciously moving me into marriage to just show me that it's not about you, but it's about me and it's about her. And so now, in humility, lay your life down. Husbands, how can you lay your life down? I asked my wife as we were driving yesterday, There was a situation that we had come across and it was really a heartbreaking situation. And I told Andrea, I said, honey, I said, I'm not trying to dog this individual who was just really hurting his wife. I said, honey, I said, if there's any, if there's any area of my life where I'm like doing that, just tell me, just tell me. Because I see what he's doing and I see how she's suffering. Will you just show me? And I promise, I promise by the, by the grace of God, I'll humble myself and I'll serve you. 
Leaders in the church. No one told me when I became a leader in our church. I was really about building my own kingdom. I was. 20 years ago, it was just really about ugly stuff. And through the years, God has just brought me through hard stuff where now it's like it's just, it's a joy to just serve people. It doesn't matter what it looks like. My last job, one of the things I I did as a pastor, and God was just graciously tapping me on the back as I was doing it. As all the people were coming in to worship on Sunday mornings, we had this lovely flock of geese that would just somehow come on Sunday mornings, and they would just litter the parking lot and the sidewalks. And guess who had to go out there with the shovel? The pastor. Yes, we had deacons. But I'll never forget, my boss said, he said, I want you to go out there and I want you to do it. And I'll never forget one day, he told me, he said, Scott, that was probably the most significant thing you did. You humbled yourself. You became like a servant. Church leaders, Church work is hard, right? It calls us to get involved in hard stuff when it's much easier to just go the other way. What's God inviting you into? Again, he calls us to be like him in putting others first and taking the lowest place of ourselves. Church, I want to ask you this season to take the lowest place. What does that look like for you? This passage demands something of me and you. So, how should we respond to the greatest birth of all time? Yes, worship, exactly. And how is it played out? Jesus washed feet. Lake Norman Baptist. Great saints who have probably been here for years. You've given resources. What's it look like now in the fourth quarter for you to lay down your life and serve? Not how people can serve you. That wasn't wasn't the MO of Jesus at all. Matter of fact, he, he, he eventually died on a Roman cross. And all of the Christian life is really to the death of ourselves so that Christ might live. It's, church, it's not getting easier, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, yes. For my power is what made perfect and what weakness. So God invites us to worship Him. And church, I want to encourage us to worship Him in humility. If you would pray with me. And as we're going to pray, I want to ask Pastor Carl to come up. We're going to take communion here in a moment. And before we do, I'm just trusting that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. This passage demands something of you and me. And I even trust that by God's grace, if you'll make room, he's saying something. He's demanding something of you. Father, as we go now to the table and Pastor Carl leads us, will you open our eyes that we might see 
God, even me. That you would open our ears that we might hear that the word of God would lead us to you, the God of the word, and we would respond in worship. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.